Well, hopefully you're um, already turned to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you haven't turned there, then turn quickly because we're going to dive right into it this morning. Uh, I'm going to talk on the subject of showing honor in a multi-generational church. Showing honor in a multi-generational church. And so if you have your Bible open there to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, let's stand together for the reading of the scriptures as we are attentive to his voice, what, he, what God has said in his word, and that we're uh, acknowledging the authority with which he speaks. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we, we do thank you for your true and living word, and we open it with the expectation that you're going to speak to us in it. We open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us, Lord, and we bow our knee to the authority of your word as spoken by God Most High. And so would you speak now to us, O oh Lord, by your spirit, your word through your servant to your people and for your glory, for Christ's sake. Amen. And we can be seated together. Well, you uh, may recall if you've been tuned in as we've been going through this series through 1 Timothy. We know Timothy's ministering in a church that is full of strife because of false teaching that's been circulating there and just all of the dysfunction that has, has sort of grown out of um, that false teaching. So last week we looked at um, chapter 4 and read about how Paul gave instruction to Timothy of how he was to be a good minister in that context. What is it that he would need to do to be a good minister 
in that dysfunctional, strife-ridden context. Then here in chapter 5 and in the first few verses of chapter 6, Paul outlines a few ways in which Timothy's to give instruction to the church about how they're to show honor to one another in the Christian community. And so there, there will be a few different expressions of that, and we're going to look first um, at, at the first of those, or the first couple of those this morning. So, so what I want to do um, this morning is take a quick survey of the text. So we're going to kind of, kind of do a what, and then so what. So what's, what's just here in the text, and then what principles can we derive from that? So we, we see the the, the, the text kind of broken down, I'll, I'll sort of unpack it under, under three headings and three sections, really three headings under two sections. But the first two verses basically tell us that the, uh, we should honor church members as we would family members. The instruction to Timothy is to honor church members as you would family members. And you see there in verses one and two that he's to honor older men as fathers, so to encourage them. Uh, don't rebuke them. Younger men, he's to regard as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. So this is one of several places in the New Testament where uh, we, we basically get the idea that roles and relationships in the church are described in family terms. So we're to, we're to think, it's more than an analogy, in other words, that, that sort of in an organic way and in a spiritual way, The church is family. We think of those roles and relationships in family terms. It's also one of the passages where we come away with the understanding that the fourth command, or rather the fifth commandment, uh, honor your father and mother, that that applies not only to our biological father and mother, or even if not biological, the person raising us as father and mother in the household. It not only applies there, but it also applies to the older generation. In the church. In fact, we'd read elsewhere, the Bible also applies that principle to just others in authority. So it's broader than just the household, but this is one of the places we get that notion that we're, we're to honor not only our father and mother, but also just older people. And many of you can remember a time uh, when that principle was broadly taught in the culture and obeyed. It was just understood if you were a child, you wouldn't think of uh, talking back to an adult in most places, even an adult you didn't know. Um, if you did do it, you knew you were really crossing a line. You can remember too a time where we would have never, cons- and a, a grown-up would have never considered um, being in constant negotiation with a seven-year-old about whether the child was going to do what they told them to do. Again, whether it's a parent or some other adult. But we're to honor church members as we would family members. And then in verses 3 through 16, you kind of have this, this, it's sort of interwoven here. Um, On one hand, uh, some instruction about which widows are to be cared for by the church and which widows are not to be cared for by the church. And so again, I'll break it down that way. And, And I want you to be following along in the text. You can just, rather than looking at the screen for notes to follow or anything like that, look at the text and see if you see in the text what I'm describing here. But uh, first it tells, he tells Timothy that the church should care for its widows, that is those among the family of faith, who are truly widows, who truly have a need, and they're truly committed to the church. To, To take care of the widows who truly have a need 
and those who have been truly committed to the church. So in the Old Testament and then carrying over into the New Testament, the community of faith showed a special concern for widows. If you've read the Bible, you're probably aware of this. In fact, in the Old Testament, um, proper concern for widows is really even like a key measure of justice uh, to care for widows, orphans, the, the, the sojourner or immigrant, you know, the alien, the stranger, the poor among you. Those, uh, those who are the most needy among them are supposed to be cared for with the most compassion and to fail to do so is an act of injustice in the community of faith. So widows fall into that category. And, and it, this looks and feels a little differently today, actually quite a bit differently today, because we, we don't live in a theocracy, number one, like they did in the Old Testament, but we have social welfare, welfare programs um, that provide for a lot of the needs that maybe the church or the community of faith once would have uh, provided for. So we have things like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and, and different kinds of um, institutions and that sort of thing to help take care of the needy and specifically the elderly. So it, so it looks a little different to us, and so we, we kind of have to maybe zoom out and just think about proper care for people in need. But the Bible identifies widows as some of the most needy people in the community, and the church was to care for those who, who needed care. And so he describes in the passage, as you're looking there, uh, the widow who was truly a widow, as he said. So she's left all alone, has no one to take care of her, she's uh, she has a genuine faith, and she's steadfast in prayer. She's at least 60 years old, which is, which is kind of interesting, not far off from the original um, uh, age limit of Social Security. Uh, she was a wife of one husband, it says, and then she had a reputation for good works. So she's brought up children of her own. She's shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted. This has been somebody who's been faithful as a member of the community of faith, been faithful in her own household, and now is truly in need. The church ought to take care for her, has an obligation to care for her, while she still has an obligation to the church. But then it also says the, chur the church should not take on the bur burden of caring for widows who have other means of support or who just don't warrant the care of the, uh, of the church. They don't warrant the church's support. So that includes widows who have family who can take care of them, children, grandchildren, and so forth. There's a couple of different mentions of that there in the text. Uh, widows who are self-indulgent, it says. So in other words, they've neglected to honor God and others faithfully. They've, been, they've lived with, with a greater concern for self. Um, they've not had proper regard for the Lord and for his people. And so the, 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 the Lord's people have no obligation to show special regard for her at that point in her, in her life. Uh, so um, it says that, by implication, those widows who are younger than 60. So they're, so they're to enroll widows who are uh, 60 or older, but not those who are younger than 60 because it says they're likely to become idlers and gossips and busybodies. Um, they're going to want to remarry and so abandon the station that they've been uh, devoted themselves to as a widow in the church. It's almost as if there's a special order, uh, if not an office, of widows. And this is the only mention of what we get here um, but that there is a calling upon them and they have a duty within the church to, to pray and to continue to serve and so forth. 
But uh, he says they should, they should remarry and then manage their own households there. So I want you, to, before we sort of move on from there and just kind of look at what's in the text, let's, let's make note of the fact that it doesn't simply say the church doesn't have to care for younger widows. In other words, it's, it, they're not absolved of the obligation. It says you should refuse to care for them. And so we can kind of just put this in our hip pocket as something else to ruminate on. But, but two observations about that. Number one, sometimes helping hurts. Sometimes help of the wrong sort is actually not helpful in the long term. And, and, and he gives a glimpse of how that happens in their cases. They're able-bodied. They, they could work. They could remarry. They could manage a household of their own. But since all their needs are provided for, they're just idlers and they've got too much time on their hands and they become gossips and busybodies and a source of some of the strife that's stirring around the church. He said, that's not good for them or anybody else. Don't do it. Sometimes helping hurts. Uh, The other inference we could take from that is that uh, the church's resources are finite. Uh, The choice to use them in one place is the choice not to use them in other places and so they have to choose wisely. So that's just what's in the text. Honor church members the way you would family members. Care for widows who warrant the church's care. Don't care for widows who don't. And so from that, I want to draw out three principles. We've kind of just touched them loosely as we've brushed through the passage there. But I want to draw out three principles for showing honor in a multi-generational church. And number one that there's a baseline level of honor that's owed unconditionally to everyone in the church, young, old, and all in between. Okay, A baseline level of honor owed unconditionally to everyone in the church. Number two, that while honor is due to everyone, not everyone is to be honored in the same way or to the same degree. And that's a little bit of a paradigm buster in our democratic, American, egalitarian sort of context. But I think that's a real clear implication of the text. Number three, we're going to see that a multi-generational church should take some relationship cues from the multi-generational family. The multi-generational church ought to take some relationship cues from the multi-generational family. So let's unpack it there again under these headings. Three principles for showing honor in a multi-generational church. And the first one, as I said, there's just a baseline level of honor owed unconditionally to everyone. In ancient Greece, and just that that Greco-Roman world um, into the first century when the church was birthed, honor was something that a person enjoyed because of position, title, wealth, and so forth. And uh, that could mean, it, 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 the word honor would mean different things when applied differently. So it could just mean the esteem or regard we have for a certain person and show to a certain person. That's often the way that we use it. It could mean sort of the glory that comes with a high position, like kings or those in authorities, emperors, and so forth. Um, it could actually mean financial compensation. So honor, uh, like we think of, Sometimes speakers, maybe guest preachers, are paid an honorarium, we call it. So it's not necessarily a, a, a fee that's agreed upon, but just compensation that's offered because it's fitting for whatever service has been rendered or the office of the one rendering it. 
Um, but the honor of one person was to be distinguished from another in this kind of stratified society that would have been true in, in Greece and even in Rome. Uh, some people were, were uh, owed more honor than others. And here's, here's the thing I really want us to, to lay hold of today. The honor was regarded as a personal possession. It was, it was regarded as a personal possession. So think for a moment of how we feel about liberty. I choose that because it's a topic of discussion uh, among us even right now. But the, the way we feel about liberty and when our rights to liberty are threatened or infringed upon and that kind of thing. So we, we as Americans, we, we've, we've said in our Declaration of Independence and we've been taught in school and so forth and believe that um, it is the creator who has endowed us with certain inalienable rights that among those are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So we, we say it's a birthright. It's natural. I have it because I'm human, not because anybody has given it to me. That's just mine. So when it is threatened or infringed upon, we say, hey, you can't do that. That's mine. Now, I, I use that, again, not to... Uh, stir you up or make you groan about something uh, rather than having lips sweetened with thanksgiving and praise this morning. But it is to say that that way that we feel about liberty, that that belongs to me. You can't just take it. I don't have to earn it from you. It just belongs to me. That's how honor is regarded in the ancient world. It's something that belonged to me as a personal possession uh, and it was to be given to me. I didn't have to earn it. Now, again, this kind of cuts across the grain from the way we think about it. Very, a lot of times, even now, people will say, you know, respect is something uh, you have to earn. It's not just given. Um, now, honor is maybe a, uh, something slightly different than respect. Uh, but I would say honor doesn't have to be earned. Dishonor maybe needs to be earned. But honor is owed to people, and that's a New Testament concept. Um, so I, somebody doesn't have to ask for it or demand it. It belongs to me, and you should just give it. Let, let me illustrate this in this way, uh, because this is really, this is a bit of a paradigm buster, a game changer for us, if we, can be, if we can begin to broaden our thinking about the honor that we're supposed to show and give to other people. So when I was in high school, we moved at one point uh, just about a mile down the road. I mean, it, was, it might not even be a mile, right around the corner. And uh, our dog got out at one point and ran back to the old house. It, we, we had a neighbor who also had a dog, and I guess they had become backyard friends, you know, through the fence or whatever. Ran back to the old house. We, we didn't know that's where it had gone to. The dog just was lost, and so we, for, for several days, just looking for the dog, and we kind of scoured the neighborhood at one point and discovered that the dog was in the neighbor's backyard because the neighbor had opened a gate and let the dog in and just kind of claimed the dog as their own. Now, they knew us, had a child that went to school with myself and my siblings. Like, they could have found us, could have brought the dog back. Well, we went back and said, you know, give me my dog back or whatever. Please give me my dog. I don't know exactly how that conversation went. But the point is, that was our dog. 
We shouldn't have, that dog belonged to me. We shouldn't have to go ask for the dog back as my dog. You should give it back. In fact, they should have gone out of their way to give the dog back. Okay, honor belongs in a category like that in the Christian community. It belongs to us and it is to be just given and given freely to those to whom it is due. So the Christian community retained this concept um, that honor is just owed to certain people. You see um, references like uh, in Romans, I think it's in uh, chapter 13, where, where Paul says, uh, give honor to whom honor is due. And then over in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, I believe it is, uh, particularly in verse 17, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Everyone is owed a certain measure of honor. Uh, certain people, like the emperor, owed special honor. Honor those who are due honor. That, the Christian community retained that concept, but also kind of added to that that everyone is owed a certain measure of honor because they're made in the image of God. And so Christians are commanded then and now to treat everyone with honor. But here's the rub. None of us really like this, but we are personally supposed to be willing to be treated with dishonor. We're not to dishonor anybody. We're supposed to give it freely, but ourselves being willing to suffer dishonor for the sake of Christ. Even when it's suffered wrongly, First Peter would challenge us with. So honor belongs to the receiver, not the giver. Okay, honor, as the, honor is not something that I hold on to and I just decide, am I going to give it to people or not? Am I going to withhold it because I don't think you deserve it or I am upset with you or whatever the case may be? No, that is not yours to withhold. That is, you are stealing what belongs to somebody else and defying God himself by withholding honor from the person to whom it is due. Honor belongs to the receiver not to the giver. So that's number one. Number two, while honor is due to everyone, not everyone is to be honored in the same way or to the same degree. And we see that here, um, even as he talks about honor older men as fathers, uh, older women as mothers. Okay, so, so uh, fathers and mothers are honored a, a little bit more highly or more reverently in the household, Right? Than, um, than siblings are, for example. Everybody's worthy of honor, but different degrees of honor uh, uh, warranted for different people. But even widows themselves honor those who are truly widows, not those who aren't. So uh, not everybody's to be honored in the same uh, way or to the same degree. Now, the, the church doesn't really associate honor with wealth and power and position the way secular culture does now or the way it did in the secular Greece and Rome. We don't, we don't associate um, honor with, uh, with those things. And so we might say that the faithful Sunday school teacher who has taught, you know, fourth and fifth graders um, faithfully for years and years and has interceded for them, even in ways they don't know about, has prayed them out of messes, even, even after they went on into middle school and high school, prayed for them and they don't even know that's happening. When they, that person has served faithfully that way, is worthy of more honor, even though they've done that in ambiguity. 
than the, you know, the, the, the preacher with the big mouth and the puffed up chest who kind of wears medals on his chest of all his accomplishments in ministry and uh, won't let any gathering pass by without telling you um, in some subtle or not so subtle way about that. That, that Sunday school teacher uh, is worthy of more honor even um, than other people who have maybe served um, and, and been acknowledged more conspicuously. But the, but the point there is to say we don't demand honor or barter for it or measure it out on a balance scale. Like, I've already given you honor. You've got to give me a little bit before I'm going to give you the rest. We give it because it belongs to the other person, right? We give it to the one to whom it's due. And, and for some, that may seem like more than others. Or in many cases, it may seem like more than us. And that's really probably the bigger point here is uh, let's dispense with the idea that honor needs to be given and received equitably because we're going to feel shortchanged if we go into it without expectation. Give it to whom it's due, even if that uh, seems unevenly distributed. Um, as we've considered before, our culture uh, values things that are new and not things that are old. And this, this actually has an impact on how we think about honoring different generations in our church. Remember I said that the sort of subject of the message has to do with showing honor in a multi-generational church. One of, the, one of the stumbling blocks for churches many times is how do you properly honor those of different generations? And right now, one of the cultural trends in the broader culture, but that influences the church as well, we just don't value old things in general. Uh, we like new stuff. And so um, an illustration of that is that the antiques market, as I understand it, the antiques market has plummeted in recent years for this very reason. I, I, I searched on this and ran across an, uh, a New York Times article from a few years ago but, uh, about that subject of the antiques market. But it said that when, when New York's prestigious Winter Antique Show was founded in 1955, the show required that um, exhibited pieces be at least 100 years old. Okay, so if you didn't follow that, 1955, they established this prestigious antique show in New York called the Winter Antique Show, and any exhibited piece had to be at least 100 years old. Fast forward to 2009, the organizers and the dealer committee uh, changed that to, to, um, to go up to as, as recently as 1969, so 50, 50 years old so that it could include um, mid-century objects, okay? In 2016, they removed the date restriction entirely, paving the way for contemporary designs to be included. Now, I don't know really anything about antiques, but I'm pretty sure contemporary uh, design works are not antique by, by, de by definition. But it just says something about how, what's happened to the antiques market because of a disinterest in old stuff and um, a, an excessive interest in new stuff. Now, I use all that as an, as an analogy. There's nothing inherently wrong with not liking old furniture, okay? Uh, or particularly liking new furniture. The problem in our culture and the problem even in our churches many times is we don't value the old people that used to own the furniture either. 
Um, we're inclined to push people into retirement from church life, active church life, push them to the sidelines uh, pretty early on because in some cases we don't want, we, we want the young look and the young vibe in the church. We want to give off that appearance and energy or whatever and so push uh, older folks to the margin. We treasure the new and despise the old and it's unfortunate how much that's mirrored in the church. There's more I could say that, but I uh, could say about that, um, but won't right now. Um, but in, in any case, uh, I'll leave it there. Number three, a multi-generational church should take relationship cues from the multi-generational family. So everybody is owed uh, a certain baseline measure of honor unconditionally. Even so, that doesn't mean it's necessarily given equitably. equitably and and um, older folks are actually, according to the opening of chapter 5, worthy of, if anything, a higher degree of honor. Uh, but in our church, our trend is toward giving a lower degree of honor. That's really how I wanted to connect those dots. But number three, a multi-generational church should take relationship cues from the multi-generational family. Um, in the multi-generational household, which again is, is less familiar to us now because that, that's, we have other ways usually of, uh, of taking care of the elderly that maybe are better even than multi-generational household. But in a multi-generational household, there's a point when the adult child becomes the head of the house. So you may be aware of um, how some Amish households function where this is more the norm uh, now, the Amish family usually would have multiple children, and so uh, the parents at some point become grandparents, and they would likely live in the house with one of those children, often the one who inherits the, the family farm. There may be other children who have gone off and done other things, or they've bought land of their own, or whatever the case may be. But there, there, there's this picture of the children become parents, the parents become grandparents, and the, the, the ones who used to be children age into becoming the head of the household. And the, the, the older uh, parents who are now grandparents yield to the headship uh, of the new head of house. Uh, you, you maybe can just imagine how how challenging that would be in, in most, for most of us in most of our homes to actually pull that off. Um, the love and the respect and the honor and the deference really have to be just oozing, I would think, in order to be able to really do that. But the, the grandparents yield to the new head of household. In other words, it's just part of the rhythm of life in that society and culture that one generation is going to come of age and take on the mantle of authority while the older generation is going to reach the age of passing the baton of yielding to that new authority. Continuing to offer wisdom in the house but not exercising control of the house. Uh, that's a hard balance to strike particularly hard for the church and for that to happen in the church there has to be a constant flow of honor up 
and down the line. Like in other words, it just has to become part of the culture um, to be giving honor to whom it's due, lavishing honor upon people up and down the line of um, generational lines and any other lines in the church. And it's one of the reasons why uh, churches struggle so much to actually become multi-generational churches. Protestant churches have a harder and harder time with that in our age, such that it, it, for, for some, it's like you can, you can just as easily imagine a, a, a multi-generational church filled with leprechauns as you could with Christians because it's such an imaginary concept because it's so hard to pull off for this very reason, to be able to, to sort of build into the life of the church the, the, um, the belief, the values, and the rhythms of passing honor up and down so that authority is assumed when authority is yielded. And uh, people very often in churches love holding on to authority and power, even if they don't think of themselves as power-grasping or power-hungry. Um, but but uh, letting go of that is very difficult. But uh, when what often happens um, is that older generations in churches just hold on to that for way too long um, so that the younger generations filter out <laughs> and leave and go, and go elsewhere looking for uh, that mantle to pick up in some other places. Now, um, that is an enormous challenge. Um, and as I said, so enormous, it seems almost imaginary in some cases, but uh, I, can, I can just about guarantee as churches we will never succeed in becoming one generation after the next, a thriving multi-generational church, unless we take some cues, some relationship cues from the multi-generational family. Honoring older men as fathers, older women as mothers, honoring younger uh, believers as sons, daughters, brothers and sisters, and honoring them uh, with the trust and authority um, that befits them when they come um, of age and season to step into those roles. So um, again, here's a passage really specifically written to address um, a, a kind of narrow situation and need in the church in Ephesus, that being the care for widows, uh, that doesn't directly apply to us anymore. But there are certain, certainly lasting lessons to be derived, principles to be derived about how we can show honor in a multi-generational church and how any church must show honor lavishly, giving it because it's owed, because it belongs to the, the receiver, not the giver. Um, and if we learn to do that and if we sew that into the fabric of our church, um, I think we'll find our churches to be healthy and thriving and God-honoring in the most wonderful ways. Well, let's pray together. Well, Lord, you um, are faithful to speak and to put truth in writing before us. God, my prayer today is just that you would uh, bring this truth home to our hearts.
as not only true, but as authoritative, that you have said we ought to do this and not do that. We ought to conduct ourselves this way, and here's how we ought to treat and regard other people. Lord, would you take away from us every, every bit of defensiveness on every excuse that would, would try to exonerate us and just say, um, yes, Lord, however you would have me respond and obey, show me, Lord, and I will. God, would you stir our hearts, incline our hearts so to do that, that we would be a church that shows honor freely, uh, gladly, joyously, and lavishly to those to whom it's due. And be honored and glorified as we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.